say a good story. I'm Emily. And I'm Rebecca. And we're back for our first proper episode of 2021. Recording remotely because we are tragically once again separated by COVID. (laughs) So please forgive us any sound issues. But hi, welcome back. We are buzzing. Yeah, I'm excited. I'm kind of nervous. I've not done this in a while. I know, I kind of <laughs> forgot. And also, like, you're a tiny little square on my screen instead of in real life. It's, it's I strange. I don't like it as much. But we, <laughs> we do what we must for the fans. So how's lockdown life treating you this time around, Emily? It's fine. It's quiet. <laughs> yup. <laughs> I'm definitely spending more time inside than I did the last lockdown, obviously because of like the weather mm. and stuff. Like it's, it's very snowy, or at least it is where I am. Lucky you, um, it's not snowy here. Just been chilling, and doing uni work, which isn't really chilling, but you know. Eh, you yeah. enjoy it though, so. <laughs> Do you have a highlight from your, your week to share with the class? I was struggling to think of a highlight for all the aforementioned reasons. <laughs> um, <laughs> But I did think of something like new that I've done. Okay. Which is that I I bought a set of gouache paint, Ooh. and I've been trying to like teach myself how to paint again because I've not done that in years. Nice. Um, but I think my favourite things I've done have actually just been really simple, and I literally could have just done them with pen. But it's like little like quote paintings. Oh. Like I picked out quotes from books and made them into little designs. And I just feel like I need to create a hobby that isn't me trying to, like, engage my brain too much or that I'm trying to, like, get something out of it. Yeah. It's just purely for the enjoyment. So that's been quite nice. Lovely. So what about you? Do you have a highlight? Well, I've been similar, you know. There's not there's not a whole lot to be getting up to um, right now. <laughs> but... I learned, so for Christmas, I asked for and got a food processor, which is sad and old thing to ask for, but <laughs> I I did and I love it. And so I have been learning how to make my grand's chicken soup recipe. Oh, and I've made, I've made two batches and they're getting closer to how I want it to taste. So mm-hmm. that's been pretty exciting for me. I'm excited to eventually try that. Yes, I will make it for you when we are reunited. <laughs> what are you infatuated with, Emily? I am infatuated with Ninth House by Lee Bardugo, Ooh. which I'm so excited to talk about. But I also was like reading over my notes for this and I just feel like I've not (laughs) talked about all that I could have talked about. It's so cool. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, I think I'm just going to be like very excitable. That's fine. That's what we're here Um, for. And there's so much cool stuff that I just forgot about. And then I like, as I was reading over this, I was like, oh, I didn't mention that. I didn't mention that. So just so you know, there's loads of cool stuff in this book. (laughs) So I came across this because Lee Bardugo's books are all over TikTok. Okay. Um, I kept seeing her books recommended again and again, but I wasn't sure if I wanted to read them because they all seem to be part of like an interconnected series. Okay. I wasn't really sure if I wanted to start that. Although, spoiler alert, I have since bought two of them. <laughs> um but yeah, I decided to like look her up properly one day and I found Ninth House. 
and I don't know, I was just kind of drawn to it. I don't know if you can see me on your screen, but it's like a dark cover oh. with like just a snake on it. And it's like shiny and blue as well. And so I was intrigued by the cover and Mm -hmm. then and the fact that it was quite a simple title because all her other books have like longer names. Okay. So I don't know, that just seemed different. But yeah, then I find out what it's about, which is dark magic based secret societies at Yale. Loves Um, it. And then I found out that Bardugo was a student at Yale. Oh. So I was like, okay, I'm sold. Yeah. Life and Death Brigade, (laughs) sign me right up. Exactly. So basically I love this book. It's so so clever, like ridiculously clever and I should also warn that it's very very dark. It's all about death. This is not like a YA fantasy like it might kind of sound at first. It's an adult book with lots of very adult themes (laughs) and I'm also now getting to use it in my thesis which is exciting. That's so cool. Um, Yes this is very at the forefront of my mind which is why I'm trying to like rein it in don't rein it in um, <laughs> <laughs> I have to rein it in a little a little bit <laughs> but anyway on to the book yes so Ninth House came out in 2019 and it's actually the first in a series although there hasn't been a release date for the others yet Okay. And it's basically a cross between like magical realism, the supernatural, and dark academia. Alex Stern is our main character, and she has the gift of seeing ghosts, although I don't think she would frame it as a gift. She's experienced a lot of trauma because of it, but because of her ability, she's recruited to study at Yale and also secretly employed there by an organisation of sorts called Lethe House. Okay. And another important character to mention here is Daniel Arlington, who is known as Darlington, which is the greatest nickname to ever exist. That is beautiful. I know. Oh, it's so good. <laughs> and he's like her co-worker, the one who like trains her for that role. So basically there's all the secret societies that deal in the dark arts and it's their job to make sure that everything runs smoothly. So like no issues, it's all kept secret like everything's grand and her role's codename is Dante and Darlington is her Virgil which I love because it's so purposefully on the nose yeah that Um, is that's just smacking you right in the face with your metaphor right there like Darlington literally leads her into hell we love it yeah (laughs) the plot of this book kicks off with Alex finding a murdered girl and she believes that the girl's death is connected to some of the societies but the university claims that there is no connection, but Alex has her suspicions and so decides to investigate the murder for herself. And that's basically the plot of the book. Okay. One thing to know about Darlington at this point is that he's missing. So we know this at the start of the book, but we don't know like why or where or even when he went missing. But as you read, the book flips between the present day and the past. So the past has Alex's point of view as well as Darlington's. Um, before he goes missing Mm. and then the present has Alex's investigation of this murder and of course because this is the book she begins to discover like some threads that may also be connected to Darlington right and that's about all I'll say for plot because as well as being you know spooky it is a mystery novel and I'm just not going to give it away for you so yeah uh, I wouldn't say sounds sounds more. quite plot driven so yeah definitely definitely so yeah a lot of the quotes I've 
picked for today are like setting quotes mm. um so you won't really get much story from the quotes which was purposeful um, so considerate <laughs> so i thought i'd kick off my quotes for today by reading out actually a handful of little ones there are eight societies or houses that reside at yale that's why Lethe is called the ninth house right um You've got Skull and Bones, Scroll and Key, Book and Snake, Wolf's Head, Manuscript, Aurelian, St. Elmo's, and Berzelius. And for those who don't know, those are the actual names of Yale's real-life secret societies. Wow, they really just went, we have an aesthetic and we want <laughs> yeah. we want to brand with it. Yeah, Lovely. and then they all just built tombs to have their societies in. because As one does. Why not, you know? So in this book, as kind of like epigraphs, Verdugo's put quotes from Alex's Lethe House handbook that kind of explain what magic each society dabbles in. And below each quote from the handbook, there's a quote from someone who's actually dealt with that society. So they're quite funny, actually. I love that technique. Yeah, yeah, same. But they also just do a good job at explaining what society does in a succinct way. So I thought they'd be quite fun to look at. And I just picked out my favourite three. Cool. The first one is for manuscript. Shocker that that is your favourite. <laughs> <laughs> so this first quote is from The Life of Lethe, uh, Procedures and Protocols of the Ninth House. Manuscript, the young upstart among the houses of the Vale, but arguably the society that has weathered modernity best. It is easy to point to its Oscar winners and television personalities, but their alumni also include advisors to presidents, the creator of the Metropolitan Museum of Art, and, perhaps most tellingly, some of the greatest minds in neuroscience. When we speak of manuscript, we talk of mirror magic, illusions, great glamours of the type that can make a star, but we would do well to remember that all of their workings derive from the manipulation of our own perception. And then underneath it is written, Don't go to a manuscript party, just don't. From the Lethe Days Diary of Daniel Arlington, Davenport College. <laughs> oh, I love that. It's like a sort of Hollywoody house. Yeah, yeah, I thought you'd like that one. <laughs> so this one is from Wolf's Head. Wolf's Head, fourth of the houses of the Vale, Lobrizelius would argue the point. Members practice therianthropy and consider simple shapeshifting to be base magic. They focus instead on the ability to retain human consciousness and characteristics while in animal form. Primarily used for intelligence gathering, corporate espionage and political sabotage. Wolf's Head was a major recruitment ground for the CIA in the 1950s and 60s. It can take days for someone to shake off the traits of an animal after a shifting ritual. Keep discussions of an important or sensitive nature around animals to a minimum. And then underneath it is written... I'm tired and my heart won't stop racing. My eyes look pink. Not the whites, the irises. When Roger says we were going to fuck like rabbits, I didn't think he meant actual rabbits. Lethe Day's Diary of Charles Chase McMahon, Saybrook College 88. That's outstanding. I know, it's so good. Because you just know that they would. Yeah. They would do that. Of course they would. <laughs> oh, right, and the last one I have is from Book and Snake. We may wish to pass more quickly over Book and Snake, and who could blame us? There is an element of the unsavoury to the art of necromancy, 
and this natural revulsion can be nothing but increased by the way the lettermen have chosen to present themselves. When entering their giant mausoleum, one can hardly forget one is entering a house of the dead. But it's perhaps best to put aside fear and superstition and instead contemplate a certain beauty in their motto. Everything changes, nothing perishes. In truth, the dead are rarely raised beneath their showy pediments. No, the bread and butter of the lettermen is intelligence, gathered from a network of dead informants who traffic in all manner of gossip and who needn't listen at keyholes when they can simply walk unseen through walls. And then under that... Tonight, Bobby Woodward coaxed the location of an abandoned speakeasy from what looks like little more than the remnants of a spine, a broken jawbone and a hunk of hair. There is no amount of Jazz Age bourbon that can make me forget that sight. Lethe Day's Diary, Butler Romano, Saybrook College 65. That's hilarious. <laughs> that sounds so uh, fun. This book sounds so fun. Yeah, it is. Like I know I said it's really dark, but it is very humorous as well. And yeah, I just think like those are really great detail to include because it's, I don't want to say easy, but it's like a simple way of filling out the world. Like, mm-hmm. quite quickly. I like the one with Darlington's addendum in it too, because it does actually refer to a scene in the novel, which you find out after you <laughs> read that bit. But what these extracts also do is explain, like, how powerful these societies are, which is a reflection of real life. Mm-hmm. Um, as I've said already, there are real secret societies at Yale, and they are filled with the elite. What Bardugo's done is use magic to show how powerful they are because in real life they may not have magic but they still have power yeah and it's also worth noting that alex does not come from this place of privilege and um, she's an outsider at yale she's not rich she's mixed race she has a criminal past and being a woman at university is still sadly not always easy there are still lots of what i'll call social politics um to put it mildly yes but she does have a power which is being able to see ghosts so there's lots of really interesting dynamics going on and i like really applaud bardugo for writing about all of these complexities as well as just like the occult. Yeah. We love magic as a metaphor. Yes, exactly. It also, like, is, it keeps it efficient and simple, as you've said, but it is really insightful. Yeah, definitely. And so, yeah, I thought I'll just move on and give you more of, like, a scene setting. Mm-hmm. It talks about some of the physical setting. It explains how ghosts, like, operate in this world. And it's also just a good one to kind of show the tone of the book, although I'm sure you've kind of got the tone from what I've already read out. So this is from a present day part of the novel and all you really need to know for this is that they call ghosts greys. Okay. Ahead of her, greys formed a thin grill that shifted over the roof of the law school, spreading and curling like milk poured into coffee, drawn by the grind of fear and ambition. Book and Snake's towering white tomb loomed on her right. Of all the society buildings, it was the most like a crypt. Greek pediment, ionic columns, pedestrian stuff, Darlington had said. He saved his admiration for the moorish screens and scrollwork of scrolling key, the severe mid-century lines of manuscript. But it was the fence surrounding Book and Snake that always drew Alex's eye, black iron crawling with snakes. A symbol of Mercury, god of commerce, Darlington had said. 
Gods of thieves, even Alex knew that one. Mercury was the messenger. Ahead of Hurley Grove Street Cemetery, Alex glimpsed a cluster of greys gathered by a grave near the entrance. Someone had probably left cookies for a lost relative or something sugary as a fan offering for one of the artists or architects buried there. But the rest of the cemetery, like all cemeteries at night, was empty of ghosts. During the day, greys were called to the salt tears and fragrant flowers of mourners, gifts from the living left for the dead. She'd learned they loved anything that reminded them of life. The spilled beer and raucous laughter of frat parties, the libraries at exam time, dense with anxiety, coffee and open cans of sweet syrupy coke, dorm rooms staticky with gossip, panting couples, mini fridges stuffed with foods going to rot, students tossing in their sleep, dreams full of sex and terror. That's where I should be, Alex thought, in the dorm, showering in the grimy bathroom, not walking by a graveyard in the dead of night. The cemetery gates had been built to look like an Egyptian temple, their fat columns carved with lotus blossoms, the plinth emblazoned with giant letters, the dead shall be raised. Darlington called the period at the end of that sentence the most eloquent piece of punctuation in the English language. Another thing Alex had been forced to look up, another bit of code to decipher. It turned out the quote was from a Bible verse. Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet shall sound and the dead shall be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. Incorruptible. When she saw that word, she understood Darlington's smirk. The dead would be raised, but as for incorruptibility, Grove Street Cemetery was making no promises. In New Haven, it was best not to hope for guarantees. I love it. <laughs> it's so good, isn't it? Oh my god, that whole descriptive paragraph about the dorms. Yeah. That was so on point. I love um, staticky with gossip. Yeah, that's what I was just about to say. That was such a good phrase. <laughs> I loved this book from the onset because like, the story is good. Mm-hmm. But this quote, which is... 45 pages in just sold me and I like I don't know why I think it's like the mix of the setting like the graveyard and the tombs and stuff like the ghosts the fact that ghosts kind of operate differently like you would assume they did hang around the cemetery but obviously like Bardugo's saying no they don't in this world Mm -hmm. and then like the fact that Darlington's obsessed with symbols and quotes and he like smirks at the punctuation oh What an absolute dream. I know. But also, like, that Alex waits to look it up instead of asking him what it means, which I think says a lot about her personality, too. Yeah. Um, (laughs) Yeah, and, like, I think it's just a good example of, like, the humour we see in this novel, which isn't so laugh-out-loud funny, but quite, like, dry, clever, witty humour. Oh, I just love it so much. (laughs) And I also just, like, really want to see this in person. Like, it is a real place. I have seen the photos and I I want to be there. It just seems cool. Yeah, it's very, like, that passage even there was, like, I could see that in my head so clearly. It was really cinematic. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I do actually have, like, a note to add about that, which is that I found a video on YouTube of a girl, like, following the map in this book. Mm. So, like, she's taken footage of all the buildings in the book and read out a corresponding quote about each of them, like, at each location. That's so Um, cool. So you can, like, see the tombs I've just talked about, as well as, like, 
loads of other cool locations. I just thought it was a really cool video, so I'll I'll link it. In yeah. The show notes. But yeah, as as well as the setting, I thought I would share a quote which talks about magic too. Obviously. Um, and this one is like it's just a really wonderful scene. It's just been stuck in my head since reading it because it's a very unique kind of magic. This passage is in the past and it's from Darlington's point of view and he's given Alex basically like her first introduction to magic and just for a a little bit of context for this quote although he doesn't know why he's realized that Alex doesn't want her tattoos on show and so she has like these full sleeves but she refuses to let them be seen and so he does this for her. Okay. One by one he took out the moths and laid them gently on her skin. One at her right wrist her right forearm, the crook of her elbow, her slender biceps, the knob of her shoulder. He repeated the process with her left arm, then placed two moths at the points of her collarbones where the heads of two black snakes curled, their tongues nearly meeting at the hollow of her throat. Shabash, he murmured. The moths beat their wings in unison. Uverat, they flapped their wings again and began to turn grey. Memash. With each beat of their wings, the moths grew darker and the tattoos started to fade. Alex's chest rose and fell in jagged, rapid bursts. Her eyes were wide with fear, but as the moths darkened and the ink vanished from her skin, her expression changed, opened, her lips parted. She's seen the dead, he thought. She's witnessed horrors, but she's never seen magic. This was why he had done it. Not because of guilt or pride, but because this was the moment he'd been waiting for. The chance to show someone else wonder. To watch them realise that they had not been lied to. That the world they'd been promised as children was not something that had to be abandoned. That there really was something lurking in the woods, beneath the stairs, between the stars. That everything was full of mystery. The moths beat their wings again, again, until they were black, then blacker. One by one, they tipped from her arms and dropped to the floor in a faint patter. Alex's arms were bare, stripped of all sign of the tattoos, though in places where the needle had gone deep, he could still discern faint ridges. Alex held her arms out, breath coming in gasps. Darlington gathered the moth's fragile bodies, placing them gently in the box. Are they dead? she whispered. Ink drunk. He shut the lids and placed the box back in the cupboard. This time the locked click seemed more resigned. He and the house were going to have to have a discussion. Address moths were originally used for transporting classified material. Once they drank a document, they could be sent anywhere in a coat pocket or a box of antiques. Then they'd be placed on a fresh sheet of paper and would recreate the document to the word, as long as the recipient knew the right incantation. So we could put my tattoos on you. They might not fit quite right, but we could. Just be careful, he waved a hand, in the throes. Human saliva reverses the magic. Only human? Yes, feel free to let a dog lick your elbows. Then she turned her gaze on him. In the shadows of the room, her eyes looked black, wild. Is there more? He didn't have to ask what she meant. Would the world keep unravelling, keep spilling its secrets? Yes, there's plenty more. She hesitated. Will you show me? If you let me. Alex smiled then, a small thing, 
a glimpse of the girl lurking inside her, a happy, less haunted girl. That was what magic did. It reveals the heart of who you'd been before life took away your belief in the possible. It gave back the world all lonely children longed for. That was what Lethe had done for him. Maybe it could do that for Alex as well. Months later, he would remember the weight of the moth's bodies in his palm. He would think of that moment and how foolish he had been to think he knew her at all. Holy shit! <laughs> the horror of having moths on you, first of all. I know, I that's, hate That's going to haunt me forever, thanks for that. <laughs> but the magic is cool, and the idea that they could, like, drink a document and recreate it. Yeah. Love that. I know. The spit know. thing. Love when there's a random in- antidote. Like, does that mean <laughs> if you spit on the bit of paper that's been drunk that it comes back? Who knows? Oh, I don't know, actually. Possibly. Yeah, it must do. Yeah, it must be. Loopholes. I should also know, I realised I didn't explain that the building they're in is kind of, like, alive and that's why he said he needed to have a word with it later. I just oh. realised that was a very, like, weird line to not explain. <laughs> um, but anyway, yeah, I I love that quote because you do have the magic, but we also have, like, a quiet moment between two characters who don't really know each other yet. Mm. It's like they're both kind of learning to trust each other. It's the first glimmer of like whatever their relationship will turn out to be. Except as the line suggests, obviously they still don't know each other. Uh, It's definitely very intriguing. Mm. Also in this copy that I've got, Bardugo has annotated a chapter of the book um, and it's actually this chapter. Um, So I just wanted to share a little annotation that she's written. It's not actually next to the quote that I read out, but I still think it makes sense to bring up. But she writes, Darlington is constantly at war with his need to romanticise everything. He wants a world of more magic, more beauty, more stories. And I think you guys all know by now that that's the kind of character that I love. Yes. I think Darlington's just so intriguing for lots of very spoilery reasons, but one of the less spoilery reasons is that side of him, which, like, wants you know magic beauty stories and as Bardugo said he's constantly at war with wanting those things and then being faced with the real world and Mm. having to accept that which is why Alex is such an interesting contrast to him because she's had a very traumatic life so there's a lot of like vulnerability in her but she's also so strong and even though she's the one who can see ghosts she's more of a realist yeah so I think the contrast in them is great because obviously they're a pair, they're Dante and Virgil, they work together, mm-hmm. but they have like different methods and like different opinions, but you also get the sense that they're like more than just co-workers. I wouldn't really call their relationship a romantic one, but there's definitely like some kind of attraction to each other there. It's mm. almost like they're kind of fascinated with each other. Yeah, like um, magnetic sort of. Yeah, like they they like examine each other like you might remember my earlier quote that Alex talks about having to crack one of Darlington's codes yeah so like I find that far more interesting to read than just like a simple love story you know Mm -hmm. it's just a really cool dynamic to read these two people trying to like figure each other out so yeah that is that's my thoughts on (laughs) Ninth House I really love it (laughs) that quote about like the magic for like that that lonely children wanted as well oh my god yeah yeah I'm pretty sure 
one of Bardugo's annotations is under that line and she says something like, um, still waiting <laughs> or something like <laughs> I just loved it. I'm looking forward to reading the sequel whenever that does come out because the mystery that she set up for that book is gonna be really good. Which isn't to say that she's like she tied up the mystery of this book really well, but there's another mystery. Which will be interesting. And I thought I'd also just like quickly shout out the stuff I'm going to mention in my thesis in case anyone's interested. Go for it. Um, So I'm going to talk about the buildings. I'm going to talk about like the tombs, a couple of houses that Lethe use, also Darlington's family home. I'm very interested in what buildings represent in the female Gothic fiction. And I'm also going to explore the idea of secret societies being doppelgangers, which was basically like a thought I had at random, but I ended up running with it and I'm actually quite excited about it. So yeah, I'm going to start writing all that soon. So Ninth House is going to be on my mind a lot for the next few years. Yeah, I was going to say several (laughs) years of your life. And yeah, I'm excited to start Six of Crows, which is the duology of hers that I bought. Mm. That duology is YA, so I'm not expecting it to be like as dark, mm-hmm. but I'm hoping it'll be as exciting. Yeah, and the style, hopefully, that like descriptive, yeah. fun, lively writing will hopefully be there. Yeah, <laughs> and that is me. Woo! <laughs> That was a great start to the year. Loved it. Thank you. What are you infatuated with? So my first infatuation of the year is also my first read of the year. And it is Shock, a novel. (laughs) (laughs) For once. So it is Lisa Cross Smith's Whiskey and Ribbons. Now, I bought this book because... At the tail end of last year, I read her short story collection, So We Can Glow, um, and I absolutely fell in love with her writing style, which I'll talk about more in a second. But I bought Whiskey and Ribbons without knowing anything about it. Didn't read the blurb, didn't read the reviews, didn't know it was her debut novel, which it is. But I just liked her writing style, and I liked the title, Whiskey and Ribbons. I thought, that's, yeah. that's very my vibe. <laughs> so... Going in, I just want to say I had no expectations, but somehow the book subverted all of my expectations. (laughs) It is amazing. So the story is simple enough on the surface. It's told in triptych, so three voices, three main characters. You've got Evangeline, or Evie, her husband, Eamon, and his adopted brother, Dalton. We start the book in the present day, with Evangeline and we learn the premise within the first two pages. When she was nine months pregnant, Eamon, who's a police officer, was killed in the line of duty. His brother Dalton moved in to help take care of Evie and the baby. Six months have passed since then. It's winter, Evie and Dalton are snowed in in the house that she shared with Eamon. The baby is with the grandparents and that night Evie and Dalton kiss. Okay. Boom. That's the story. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm not really worried about giving like plot spoilers because what I'm going to say isn't even really the main plot. It's much more character driven than like okay. mystery driven. So yeah. um, throughout the book, we continue with Evie in the present day. Um, so it's just this one day and night of the blizzard in the house with Dalton. We get Eamon's narration, which tells the story of 
him and Evie's relationship spanning the moment that they met until his death. And then Dalton's narration flits between the past and the present and it spans the time frame of Evie and Eamon's relationship but telling the story of his own life during that time and beyond his brother's death until the present when it catches up with Evie's. So I love that to start with. I love the three sort of interweaving time frames. You know that I'm a sucker for that kind of thing. And the great thing about this book is that all the three characters are likeable. So there's not a point where sometimes, you know, the danger with a triptych is you get one voice that you're like, I just don't like this one. And you want want to be with one of the other ones. But they're all likeable. They're all very different. So their voices are really distinct. Mm -hmm. So I thought what I'd do is read out the first few lines, um, well, the first page or so from each character, just so that people can get an idea of the characters. We start, as I said, with Evie. My husband Eamon was shot and killed in the line of duty while I was sleeping. I was nine months pregnant with our son Noah. Me, a full-bellied cashew in our windows-open bedroom, our summer bed. Eamon heard the call over the police radio, domestic dispute. He was on his way home to me, but decided to swing by the disturbance since he was close. I think of him making the drive, the gentle peachy July morning light illuminating his last moments, his last heartbeat, his last breath, the god glow, an invisible shadow of death, haloing him, the kid who shot him was only 16. He'd gotten in a fight with his stepdad. The kid jumped from his bedroom window and shot Eamon. Eamon's cop buddy Brian had just parked his patrol car in the grass. He put the kid down. Brian and another cop came to the house, woke me up. I don't remember walking to the kitchen where Dalton found me, shaking, peeing across the floor like an animal. He came as soon as I called. I don't remember calling, but he told me I did. Dalton had been long adopted by Eamon's parents. They were brothers. Brian and the cop left. Dalton wouldn't leave me. We cut our hair together the Sunday after the funeral. Finale. De Capo. From the beginning. That was six months ago. Noah is six months old. He is a living, ticking timer for how long Eamon has been gone. Where did you come from? I ask Noah sometimes. Where is your daddy? But last night, de Capo. Dalton and I kissed. I kissed him. I kissed Dalton. He was playing piano and I sat on his lap facing him. Wine as dark as a dragon's heart was involved. Gold bright whiskey too. We were nearing drunk. We were waiting at the right stop and the drunk train was five minutes away. Dalton is an exquisite pianist. His mum was a concert pianist, a piano teacher. He can play anything. He played through several songs before deciding on the jangly part of Piano Man with hilarious gusto because he knows I like it and Dalton is a natural entertainer. He plays piano as if he's busking for tips and not in our living room, the two of us alone. I say our living room because he lives here now with Noah and me. Oh, wow. So, like, she's just straight in there. Yeah. <laughs> she's not fucking about. I love that opening because you can you get so much of Evie's character there in her voice. She's so direct, but she's lyrical. And mm-hmm. Evie is a dancer. And I think that comes through in the way that Cross Smith makes her speak. Like, oh, it's very yeah. light. It's very graceful, but there are no wasted words. Yeah, and the fact that she, like, mentions the piano as well. Like, she goes off on that tangent of how he plays. Mm-hmm. I feel like that's quite a dancer 
thing to think, notice. Think about, yeah. Yeah, I think like the word I've used to describe Evie's narration is precise. Um, mm-hmm. So, and that's the kind of style that she uses most often in her short stories, like sensual but concise, playful but like really tragic. And so, the obviously this as an opening, I was like, yes, I'm in. I'm convinced. I love this. And then we have Eamon. Um, he comes next. And it's a very different vibe. When I met Evangeline, I worked security at the mega church, and yes, it was as glamorous as it sounded. The coffee was free, and I had a cush spot by the exit door. I stood there, watched things. Nothing ever happened, not even close, but that was what I got paid to do. Stand there in my uniform and keep an eye on things. Make people feel safe while they worshipped. The first time I saw her, my mind was somewhere else. My phone had been blowing up. Elizabeth. You always do this. Fuck you, Eamon. Never speak to me again. Why aren't you texting back? Where are you? Have you seen my orange yoga pants? I hate you so much right now. Call me later. Whatever. Whatever, Eamon. I was putting my phone into my pocket when Evangeline walked over to me, but I didn't know she was Evangeline yet. I knew she was ridiculously beautiful, in purple, the same colour of this great jam my grandma used to make. Once I realised I was comparing the colour of her dress to my grandma's jam, I realised I was paying too much attention to already. I had a half-girlfriend, but Evangeline was a goose. Dalton and I had code words for girls. We came up with them in middle school and still used the words when we were alone. We trained ourselves to think that way forever ago, and I found myself thinking about it when I saw a beautiful woman. We made sure the words were inconspicuous. We didn't want the girls or my mum to be able to decode them. Kitten would be a dead giveaway, so we never used it. A goose was the highest level. It meant the girl was both pretty and hot, which could also mean cute and hot, but that was debatable. We'd decided on goose because it was a silly word that would never cause suspicion. A squirrel was a girl who was hot, but maybe not so pretty. A duck was a girl who was pretty, but maybe not so hot. A caterpillar was a girl who wasn't particularly pretty or hot, but we weren't ready to count her out yet. Like, maybe we could give her a couple of years. A ferret was a girl who had no hope, so we move on. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. I love that so much because he's so immediately charming. Like, (laughs) he puts you at ease. He's a little bit of a dick, but you don't even hold it against him. Yeah, I loved when he's like, oh, it was Evangeline, but, like, I didn't know it was Evangeline. Yeah. And the line about, like, oh, I've just compared her to my grand's jam, so I'm thinking about her too much. Yes. (laughs) So, yeah, I think, like, that's a really great introduction to his role in the story. He's, like, the protector. Even though we start out with him being dead, he's very much the rock and, like, the anchor of the story. And the way that he, like, freely admits to that, like, being enchanted by her makes him seem so secure. So, yeah, I think just, like, their their love and his desire to like protect his city and his family is like pretty much his arc and i think that you get mm. that from the get go and then the third voice is dalton's voice francis was fucking her heart out on top of me cursing wild eyed this was the picture i had in my mind whenever anyone would ask me why we were still together this is why we're still together we came at the same time it was kind of our thing I thought maybe I was pregnant last month, she said, slapping her back against the cool sheets of my bed. I sat up against the headboard, scratched through my hair. It was long. It was down, hanging past my shoulders. If I wanted, I could preciously put it up in what Francis and Evangeline called a man bun. What the hell? 
I said. Suspicious. Jocular. Suspiciously jocular. I'm not. I'm not, she said. She reached over to get her cigarettes from her purse. I didn't mind when she smoked one in my room, but only after sex. I loved Frances. I'd kid around with Eamon about her being crazy because that's what men did. We kid around about women being crazy, or maybe sometimes we were serious, but deep down we all knew the truth. Women weren't the crazy ones. We were. I loved Frances. I hadn't decided how much I loved her yet, but I knew I loved her at least a little. She was funny and beautiful and smart and mean when she needed to be. It was hot when she was mean. Maybe that meant I needed therapy. Maybe that meant she needed therapy. Loretta had mentioned more than once that Frances reminded her of my mother. My mother, Penelope. Penelope was my mother. Loretta was my mom. So, (laughs) Dalton is funny, but much, much colder. Um, (laughs) Yeah. Much wilder, mixed up but passionate. Obviously, he's my favourite character. (laughs) Because he is the one that completes the the triptych structure, right? It could easily Mm -hmm. just be Evie and Eamon because it's their romance. But with the Dalton story told through Evie's narration, like, you could have done it that way, but it isn't. And I love that partly because triptych is always fun and fascinating, but also because having Dalton's narration there means that he can embody what I think the story is really about, which is the ways that ties between people can be constantly changing and the roles that you fill in people's lives are kind of fluid, right? Yeah. Which ties back to the title, Whiskey and Ribbons. So we see that here in his first chapter when he talks about the two mother figures in his life straight away. Because you have his biological mum, Penelope, who died when he was a child. And then you have Eamon's mother, his adopted mum, Loretta, who has raised him. Mm -hmm. He is a fascinating character because in many ways he's defined by being undefined. So one of his arcs is about his paternity and his lack of knowledge about it. Like, he doesn't really know who his father is. And I think that it's, looking back at that introduction, it's quite telling that the first interaction that he has with Frances is her saying I think I might be pregnant Mm, Yeah, and he's like freaking out but another one is one of his arcs is his relationship with Frances who is the woman that he's with at the beginning of the book and a passage that really stood out to me over the whole book was this one from early on in Dalton's narration when he talks about Frances and he's considering whether or not they should get married okay Should we get married? She asked. She used her serious voice. This wasn't mad Francis or jealous Francis or funny Francis. This was serious Francis. Two more minutes and I'd be at Eamon's. I ran a yellow. I love that Francis didn't say one word about my crazy ass driving. A plus for her in the should we get married column. Do you want to get married? I asked her. Not a question a man should ask a woman. A man should know the answer to that question without asking. A man should be able to look into the eyes of his lover and see what he is searching for. I saw a lot of things when I looked into Frances' eyes. I saw sex and fighting and trust and knowing that she'd answer when I called, knowing she'd text me back, knowing I could call her an hour beforehand and she'd be ready, come out to dinner with me. I saw love and frustration in her eyes. We'd been together like this since the moment we met at the restaurant where I'd bartended back in the day. The first shift, my first night, she came right up to me and started bossing me around. Garbage goes here, glasses dry here, we don't leave wet towels over there and clean up your shit. That same night, we closed the restaurant together and afterwards stood by my truck, talking, 
We got into my truck, talking. She kissed me. She said, fuck it, before putting her hands on my face. Maybe those should be our wedding vows. Quick, to the point. Fuck it. We had cooling periods, weeks at a time when we wouldn't talk at all, besides the occasional have you seen anything good on Netflix text from her, or I do miss you but this break is good for both of us text from me. I never really dated anyone in between. I was reluctant to call Frances my girlfriend, even when we were decidedly together. We needed an airier word. Girlfriend was too rigid. Lover made more sense. Roomier. Girl seemed too possessive. More possessive than I intended. Francis fit perfectly. Francis was my Francis. <laughs> and this bit really stood out to me because as someone that like enjoys definition, it annoyed me because it sounds like such a fuckboy. <laughs> but also, I totally get it and I think that this passage sums up something about the tone of the book in general, which I find really refreshing is that the book doesn't pass judgment on its characters. Mm, Like, mm -hmm. it would be really easy for an author to turn this story salacious. Like, the main plot is that a man shacks up with his dead brother's girl and they get together. And without giving too much away, subplots, there's, like, affairs and secrets and questionable paternities and abortions and lies, but none of it's ever made sleazy. Mm. Because the characters are made so real that even when you don't like their actions or their thought processes, you don't judge them because you're not encouraged to. Yeah, like, they make sense. Yeah. Like, that passage just is a really good example of that. You're not encouraged to judge Dalton because he tells you all of his reasoning. Yeah. So yeah, in the book, a lot of taboos, if you want to call them that, are broken, but it's not dwelled on that they were taboos in the first place which I think gives the stories a lot more power because it's not mm. about breaking the taboo, it's just this is the story. Yeah. And there's not even a lot of preoccupation in this book with gossip or shame or guilt, around, especially not around Evie and Dalton's feelings for one another, which again I thought was quite subversive and refreshing. It is there. At one point they make a joke with one another about what the neighbours must think of him moving in, but it is a joke. Mm. and they do laugh at it because they're so deep in grief that they don't really care what the neighbours think. There's a really beautiful little bit in Evie's present day narration um, that I wanted to shout out where she says, I look pretty. I stare at my reflection for a moment longer and realise I look happy and hope it's not an accident. Happiness, an elusive fish I cannot catch whole, only small darting flashes. Feels nasty to consider or wish for happiness. But I also know that without at least a little light, things die. Oh. <laughs> Which, like, I was so pleasantly surprised by that. <laughs> like, the, the unapologetic hope that the book has. Yeah. Because it's a really tragic story, but it's not an angsty book. Yeah. It's really uplifting. And it's really sad, but it's not depressing. So, yeah, it's a fun read, because even though the story's one about death the characters are really lively so yeah I love that and one last thing that I wanted to mention and appreciate kind of going away from the story itself is the way that this book incorporates music and language and it kind of geeks out about both of them really like it it goes kind of balls out about geeking out about both of them (laughs) Um, I love that yeah um, so that's 100% up my street 
So in the story, as I've said, Dalton is a pianist and Evie is a ballerina. And one of the motifs of the book around their relationship is musical terminology. And we saw that in the passage about Francis that Dalton is preoccupied with terms and like he doesn't know what to call her, what word to apply to her. And Evie is too. And their narrations are much more preoccupied with words than Eamon's, who just says whatever he thinks. Yeah. <laughs> um, and their narrations are also both interspersed with musical terms. So we got that a little bit um, with Evie's narration of the first time they kissed. She says um, finale and de capo. De capo means from the beginning. But I'll just read another little bit of hers, which I think shows this off really beautifully. So this is just after the moment that we had earlier at the piano. He was a sublime kisser once he kissed me back. His kiss was a song. The piano started playing itself with the small of my back, the apple curve of my ass as Dalton repositioned us. Adagio. Discordant. I was well trained in classical ballet, taught it to tiny girls and boys who smelled like baby powder and oatmeal. But no, there was no grace here. I was kissing Dalton Berkeley Royce in the house I used to live in with my husband Eamon. I was kissing Dalton, my brother-in-law, my friend. Only. I'd known him as long as I'd known Eamon, because Dalton and Eamon were a package deal and everyone knew it. Dalton's mum died when he was in middle school. After that, he was raised by the Royces, with Eamon. I knew their history as if it were my own. Eamon was mine. Dalton was his. Dalton and I were always close. He was my brother from the moment I married Eamon, and now Eamon was gone. Disappeared. Dead. I was a widow. A word so ghostly and hollow, a word that should have been a palindrome but wasn't, with those W's with their arms stretched wide, begging for mercy. I wanted to grow wings and fly into Dalton's mouth, scratch and claw both of us, bleed inside him, teardrops spill all over him like honey. The snow was falling, falling still, the house quiescent, lilac mint whiskey kisses, heartbeat breaths, thrumming piano strings, slowing, slower, nocturne. Dalton pulled away. I didn't. He put his hands on my shoulders. Hot pink heat flashed my cheeks. The fireplace clicked. Let's talk about it first, he said. I shook my head no and kissed him again, saw the glitter sizzle on his bark when I closed my eyes. Sejura. My phone rang. Oh. Isn't it so good? <laughs> that is so good. Oh, I love that bit about, um, like, widow should be a palindrome. I know. That's what I mean. Oh, wow. It's such a geeky book. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, so I think there's something really poetic about this focus on the words amid all this action, which mm-hmm. just A, really vibes with how I experience the world, but also <laughs> it really serves the story because just through the writing, we get this link that Evie and Dalton have that Eamon doesn't. Mm-hmm. Like, they have a commonality of grief over Eamon. But their love for each other isn't only because of that. They have this thing outside of him, which is music. And I think that this mirroring of the way that they see the world through like music and language helps to convey that without stating it outright. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They never really talk about the fact that they have that in common. It's just there. Oh, I love that. I know. It's, it's, a, it's a really lovely book. Um <laughs> And I talked about before about the book being structured in triptych and how that enhances the like theme of fluid relationships. And Crossmith is so intentional with this. This is another geeky moment. 
because we can see it in the way that she sets up the book and the dedication and the epigraph. So the dedication, oh, I love it. Everything is so deliberate. The dedication <laughs> in this book is for you and you and you. Three U's, three different points of view. Um, And then the epigraph is a meditation on the word fugue with three different interpretations. So, fugue. That is how you say it, isn't it? Yeah, Yeah. I think so, yeah. Yeah. Fugue. Late 16th century, from French, or from Italian fuga, from Latin fuga, flight, related to fugere, flee, and fugare, to chase. Or fugue, music, a contrapuntal composition in which a short melody or phrase, the subject, is introduced by one part and successively taken up by others and developed by interweaving the parts. Or fugue, psychiatry, a state or period of loss of awareness of one's identity. Mm. I didn't know the first two, but I knew the last one. I knew that it was a musical thing, but I didn't know what it meant in music, and I did. Yeah, well, yeah. And I didn't know that thing about to chase or to flee. No. So, oh, it's so satisfying. There's like (laughs) one page exploration that acts as like a little poem mission statement for the novel because those are the those are the themes. The idea of like music, one part being taken up by another part. A period yeah. of loss of awareness of your identity and the flea in the chase. Oh, I love when epigraphs are like so part of a book. Yes. You know, you know how sometimes it's just like, oh, this is a quote, which is kind of like the tone of the book. Like they're nice. Yeah. But, like I love when it's like it means something. Yeah, it's like an <laughs> academic reading of the book, but yeah. condensed. <laughs> oh, so good. I love it. Um, and then the first page, which isn't part of the story yet, but is almost like a second epigram, reads Requiem for Eamon Michael Royce, End of Watch, July 11th. Finale De Capo, Noah Michael Royce, born July 27th. So, part of the. Obviously, Evie's nine months pregnant, and there's 16 days in between her husband dying and her son being born. Um, yeah. And I just love that because it's it's laying out that tragedy, but obviously a requiem is a song for the dead, a finale is an ending, De Capo is repeat from the beginning. Yeah. And like, yeah, it's an, an intriguing way to begin and set up a novel, but when you go back to that after reading the whole story, it just like blows my mind how she's crafted <laughs> this like tapestry of musical words which contains yeah. the entire story of the characters. And it's almost the way that a song can contain a whole story, but it's so short. Yeah. Oh, I would love to do a deep dive on the role of music in this novel, because I've only just touched on it, but I bet you there's so much that someone that knows more about music could say. <laughs> oh, it's so good. Yeah, Yeah. so like, there's loads I haven't talked about as much as I've gone on about that book. I haven't talked about Eamon much or Dalton and Eamon's bond, which is a huge part of the story. Um, their parents are really big characters and like have their own story there's the other girlfriends of Dalton and Eamon who appear there's honestly so much going on so if anyone likes the sound of what they've heard rest assured that there's loads left to discover and I'm gonna wind up by saying that Lisa Cross Smith has a new novel coming out soon in February called This Close to Okay it's on so many most anticipated book 
of 2021 lists so I've no doubt it will be just as intricate as this one so I'd get that pre-ordered if I were you nice yes Do you have any ratings chat to share? I do. I don't really have a thought about my own writing today, but like writing in general. Mm-hmm. And this is prompted because I was listening to Dak Shepherd's podcast, Armchair Expert, mm-hmm. and he had Sean Mendes on as a guest. Mm-hmm. I don't really know Sean Mendes. Like, I know I've heard his music, but I couldn't tell you like a single name. Of- mm of any of it uh, but he seemed very lovely it was a very <laughs> nice episode um, but the reason I like brought it up is because of something he said about songwriting so Dax asked him like what it's like writing all of these love songs and how it must feel quite strange sometimes making like really emotional music like making each love song sound so like devastating Mm-hmm. and Sean was like and I'm paraphrasing this but he basically says like oh well when you walk into the studio you give yourself permission to be dramatic you accept that you're going to be dramatic that day you're going to think about everything in the extreme I love that yeah, I know and it really stuck with me because I hadn't really thought about writing in that way before but it is so true mm-hmm. like for example I was writing a scene this week and it was about a date and it would have been very boring if I'd just approached it realistically and said, you know, what they did. Mm-hmm. But instead I made it all about, like, feelings, about, like, romance and what being a romantic means. And, like, it had grand gestures and little small quiet moments and lots of, like, looking into eyes and, like, oh, they touched and it was like an electric shock. Like, all <laughs> kinds of, like, things like that. And I suppose, like, what Sean Mendes said made me realise that like that's what I do when I go to write is I give myself permission to be dramatic so even if you're describing the everyday it has to seem important or else why would you be writing about it exactly like people read for drama even if it's in like little moments Mm -hmm. so I just love that he like articulated something (laughs) I hadn't really considered before but that I do definitely do so like I guess that's a tip for anyone when you're writing give yourself permission to be dramatic absolutely I think that's something that I again hadn't really heard articulated but I think of it a lot when I'm like we've we've talked about this before when you journal and you have this Mm. like fear in your head that's like I don't know in a hundred years someone's going to read your diary and think it's boring (laughs) Whereas, like, I I kind of have to do the opposite thing for, like, a journal where I'm, like, give myself permission to be annoying and boring. (laughs) Like, because it's no one's going to see it. And so, like, when you apply that to fiction or, like, creative work, yeah, you have to give yourself permission to be dramatic and, like, extra. Yeah. Like, I just love that. I'm, like, I'm going to, like, I think I'm going to think that now when I write something. Yeah. Be dramatic. (laughs) I love that. (laughs) But yeah, that's all I have this week. I thought I'd just share that knowledge with you all. (laughs) Thank you. you. So I thought to kick off this year, it might be fun to change it up. I know that we don't 
often Ooh. share details of ongoing projects on here because we want them to be spoiler free. But I had an idea for like a not serious project okay. that requires a multitude of small occurrences rather than one big narrative. So I thought it might be cool to get the infatuated community involved. Ooh. So what I want to do is collect stories of, and this is like a loose term, urban magic. And if they're real, all the better. Okay. Yeah, if you, if you want to contribute, email or DM us your favourite moments of city living magic. So for an example, my own was, I lost a lipstick on a night out and it turned up three days later, sealed and intact, tucked into the hollow of a wall that I walk past every day. <laughs> right? That, like, that doesn't happen. That was magic. So someone mentioned to me, like, the moment where you're walking somewhere in a hurry and all the pedestrian crossings turn to green as you approach them. Magic. <laughs> yeah. I want, like, everything from, like, animals, like, foxes and urban, you know, birds and things like that, to street art, to, like, buskers, to, like, secret bars and ancient passageways and, like, strange encounters or public transport shit whatever you find magic in in a city please share it with me because i've got an idea in mind that i want to do something cool with it okay i have i have that a secret so cool. there is a secret <laughs> bit of this idea that i want to turn it into something but i need lots of occurrences of this to turn it into yeah the thing. okay i'm gonna have to rack my brain for some ideas because i'm sure i've got plenty as well yeah i'm sure everyone has got at least one instance of this yeah. if you've ever lived in a city so oh. That's so cool. Hit us up with that either in our email or our infatuated podcast DMs on social media or my personal DMs if you want on at Grammar Puss on Instagram. Cool. I'm excited. It's going to be yeah, fun. That's exciting. Rubbing my hands together <laughs> mischievously. <laughs> Do you have a quick fire favourite this week? I do. So I actually mentioned this on our advent calendar, which we posted on Instagram in December. Mm -hmm. But I'm still just as obsessed and I just thought, I'm going to talk about it again. (laughs) (laughs) So it's a song, it's Roses by the band Camino. Yes. And I remember this came out the same day as Taylor Swift's new album. So like everyone was listening (laughs) to that album and I was just happily jamming away to <laughs> the band's Camino. But yeah, in my post, I called this song, like, the pep talk that everyone needed this past year because it's, it's basically, like, a reminder to, like, stop and reflect on what positives you do have amongst mm-hmm. what has obviously been a very tough year. The chorus goes, we're all human, but we've got hands and hearts and noses, so stop and smell the fucking roses. Love that. It's just so good. And that's like kind of how I like to live my life anyway. Like I can get bogged down in the negatives if I don't force myself to take a step back and focus on the positives. Mm -hmm. Like it's something I actively do is try to find the silver lining in something. You know, if something bad happens, I'm like, oh, well, at least this thing happened (laughs) because of it. Like, Yeah. I've um, I've learned that skill from you, I think. It was very helpful. <laughs> yeah. But the other thing I love about this song is that it's also self-referential. It's from their previous work, the band Camino, 
are known for being pretty angsty. They write quite sad songs which, according to them, quote, mourn the past and long for the future, Mm. which, for the record, works. They have, like, rock instrumentals and very, like, emotional vocals. Like, I love their angsty music, it's brilliant. But with Roses, the lyrics refer to not wanting to be a sad boy (laughs) and that they're done with wasting their time on the woe is me bullshit. And they even have a line that goes, I said that I would never get what I want, but I was only looking for a reason to flaunt, which must be a reference to their own song, What I Want. Ah. Um, He literally repeats over and over in that song, I'll never get what I want. (laughs) So I like that they're pointing out, you know, hey, we used to think this way but we've grown as people and we don't have to use our music to moan all the time we can actually be positive yeah i just like love a band or singer which chooses to like evolve as they grow definitely um, rather rather than trying to sort of stick to what they're known for i think Um, that's really important as well because a lot of teenagers identify themselves a lot with the music they listen to and when you're a teenager and you take a big stand on something, people no, don't really take you seriously, so you feel like you have to dig, dig your heels in more. Yeah. And then it's it kind of trips people up from growing and changing. So I think the more musicians that do that openly, the more people yeah. will be like, oh, it's okay to change your mind about something. Yeah, and like I don't think the bands came in or are saying, like, we don't like our old songs. Mm. Like, they're just saying, like, no, like, we've grown, like that's fine or like maybe you listen to the sad music when you're having a bad day but you listen to roses when you like want to have a good day you know yeah I think the term I used to describe roses in that Instagram post was um aggressive optimism (laughs) um (laughs) it's like positive vibes but with rock music love it Um, so yeah I love it everyone should listen to it it's so good. It's so catchy as well. Like it's just as genuinely a good song. It is. I've not listened to it since you were here, but I still think I could sing along with the chorus <laughs> yeah. because it's so like earwormy. Yeah, definitely. So, do you have a quick fire favorite for us? Yes, and mine is also a song. Ooh. It is a song by a band that I've only just recently stumbled upon called The Regrets. They're an LA band and they're so cool. It's it's three girls and a guy and their music videos are all just like bright and dreamy and quirky and their sound is... I, I saw someone describe it as 60s surf party feminist punk band. <laughs> That sounds about right. Yeah. When I first heard them, my immediate thoughts were montage scene in a Netflix original coming of age teen movie. Mm. So Mm -hmm. that's the vibe. Um, But this song is called California Friends and it's got this great like retro guitar riff and these rolling drums. But the best part is that the hook is the lead singer shouting, I think I love you, but then I think no way. But like it's really fast and as you say, it's like aggressive, but happy. (laughs) Um, it's just such a vibe I've been listening to it on a loop and it's given me so much energy which is nice because you know that I'm normally a a much more down tempo um, (laughs) sad music kind of person 
So, like, it's rare for me to enjoy a more upbeat, rocky, like, punkier vibe, but I really do with these. Yeah. I think you would really like them. I have definitely heard them before, but I couldn't tell you what songs I've heard. Mm. Like, I think they've come up on my, like, Spotify Discover. You know, like, I've, I've listened to them in passing. Yeah. But yeah, I like what I've heard, definitely. They're a good vibe. Do you have a rant for us this week? No. So, I've been struggling with my rants, you might have noticed, these past few episodes, guys. (laughs) And it's not for a lack of rage. Don't don't mistake that. There's plenty of rage. It's actually because there is so much in the world to be so deeply angry about that Mm. I'm kind of failing recently to muster my rage for minor annoyances that I'd normally rant about. And I don't... I don't want to make this be a place of all the bad things in the world. So until the world calms down enough that I can indulge in frivolous exasperation again, (laughs) I've decided to replace Rebecca's rant with Rebecca's roots. Each episode, I'm going to explore the etymological roots of a word that I like and I will share them. I love that. Instead of a rant. I love that etymology. I know. I figured that this community would appreciate a bit of etymology. Um... (laughs) So this week I thought it would be appropriate to start with the word infatuated. <gasps> Yay! So the roots of infatuated are fairly simple, but they made me smile. It was made popular by the French infatuation in the 1640s, but it comes from the Latin in, meaning into, and fatuous, meaning foolish. So it oh. <laughs> it translates literally to into foolishness or made foolish, oh. which I think is perfect for this podcast. Oh, definitely. <laughs> so yeah, that really made me smile. Welcome to Infatuated. Thanks for coming into foolishness with us. <laughs> yeah, so that's, that's your route for this week. Oh, I enjoyed that. <laughs> Do you have an insight for us? I do. So my insight is also about words. Oh. Interestingly enough, I stumbled upon a list of 23 emotions that people feel but can't explain. Oh, I love these Um, types of things. Yeah. So I just picked some of my favourite ones. So first one is Sonder. And this is the realisation that each passerby has a life as vivid and complex as your own. I hate when that happens. I'm too much of a narcissist for Sonder. It freaks me out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Next one is Velocorb. I think that's how you say it. I love this. The strange wistfulness of used bookshops. Oh. I miss being in bookshops. Me too. This one is Rubitosis. The unsettling awareness of your own heartbeat. Oh, that word sounds like what it is. I know. Rubitosis. That's I'm unsettled by that word. I love that. <laughs> yeah. This one is Canopsia or Canopsia. The eerie, forlorn atmosphere of a place that is usually bustling with people but is now abandoned and quiet. That's very think, prescient yeah, for right now. Of, um, I think a lot of people are experiencing Canopsia right now. Jesus. <laughs> Next one is Jouska or Juska, don't know how you say it. That is a hypothetical conversation that you compulsively play out in your head. 
Wow. Called out. Which is just my life. <laughs> yeah. That's every shower that I take, ever. <laughs> I know. Emily, um, yeah. why are you taking so long in the shower? Me, because I'm trying to win this fucking argument. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, so true. The next one is chrysalism. The amniotic tranquility of being indoors during a thunderstorm. Amniotic tranquility is an absolutely Mm. banging phrase. I know. I love being indoors in a thunderstorm. I love being outdoors in a thunderstorm, but you know, Mm. I I, I like a thunderstorm. But this one, this one's another one where I love the actual word because it does explain it very well. It's ellipsism Mm -hmm. a sadness that you'll never be able to know how history will turn out oh we love a punctuation referencing definition i know that makes me happy yep and this is the last one it's nodus tollens the realization that the plot of your life it doesn't make sense to you anymore (laughs) wow (laughs) ouch I feel like all these emotions are so like what's the word philosophical (laughs) yeah Uh, I think yeah I don't know if these are emotions so much as just existential waves (laughs) yeah like emotion Um, is happy emotion is sad emotion is angry like these are too niche uh, I know but yeah those were those are some of my favorites and I had actually I know we've already extended a bit of a challenge to our listeners mm. but I was going to ask someone should write something for us that uses one of these words or that takes inspiration from them you should send that on our social media or email us and we could read it out yeah um, I think that would be a fun little challenge we're just firing out the challenges today we don't want to do the work anymore guys come on <laughs> we're just going to divvy out all the work to everyone else yeah <laughs> give us content oh no uh, i love that that was fun thank you you're welcome so we have a question this week yes this one comes from friend of the podcast d d fretter And he asks, if you were going to make a film adaptation of Song of Achilles, who would you cast? Do you know what? I saw a TikTok of someone casting this. Right. And they got got some of them, I thought, spot on. Right. Sure. So the one I thought they got spot on was Odysseus. They said Oscar Isaac. Here, Rebecca shows her (laughs) thing of not knowing who anyone is. No, Google him. It makes sense. I'm doing it. Oh, yes. Mm-hmm. The guy from Ex Machina. Yes, I can totally um, see it. Mm-hmm. I have the same birthday as Oscar Isaac. Fun fact. There you go. So yeah, I think that fits really well. And then I think they also cast Alex Pettifer as Achilles. I was gonna say him because he does look very Greek god, doesn't he? Yeah, and he's very golden. Um, yeah, definitely. And I think. The thing is, sorry Alex, he's not a very good actor, but, you know... Achilles doesn't really need to be. Achilles is so extreme that you don't... You can't really fuck up that personality. uh, Yeah, I suppose, actually, yeah. (laughs) And then they had... Oh, what's his name? Hold on, I'm going to need to Google him so I can remember his name. Yeah, they had Alfie Enoch as Patroclus, 
which I also think would work because he has a very kind face. Yeah. Oh my god, that's so spot on. So yeah, those were none of my original ideas, but I actually like literally saw a TikTok of that this week. So that was very fitting. Nice. So um, I was going to say Alex Pettifer for Achilles. <laughs> and I hadn't thought about Odysseus, but that's pretty perfect. Yeah. I think, who was it that I was going to say? I, I had thought of someone for... Oh, I have just watched The Queen's Gambit, but I thought that Anya Taylor-Joy would make a really good Briseus. Yeah, I wouldn't have thought of her, but that does make sense. I always I think. think of Briseus yeah. as having like really sharp features. Mm. I don't know why. I think maybe just because she's like quite switched on to what's happening. Yeah. But she's also really vulnerable, so you know her big eyes would yeah. act that well. Who would you cast as Thetis? Oh god, this is just... I feel like... I'm trying to remember... I think the TikTok might have cast Kate Blanchett. If I, I remember right. I mean, Which I she think is. Kind of makes sense. She is your your go to for ethereal, scary woman. Yeah. I also just because I'm watching Chilling Adventures of Sabrina, um, the bird that's Lilith. Oh, yeah. She would make it. What's her, what's her name? I don't know her actual name, but she is so cool. Like, yeah, she'd be a good one. I can see her, or even um, even Zelda. Oh, yeah. She'd make a good face. Uh, Michelle Michelle Gomez. Is, oh, yeah, is yeah, the yeah. name, and then Miranda Otto oh, yeah. is Auntie Zelda. Both of them would make a good face. Yeah, and do you know who they should cast as Chiron? They should have him reprise his role as Chiron from Percy Jackson, Pierce Brosnan. <laughs> I mean, it's it's certainly a vibe. <laughs> do you know who I thought of as Chiron? But it might just be because I've seen him with a shirt off so much recently, as um, <laughs> your man that's the Duke in Bridgerton. Oh, yeah, um... Oh, what's his actual name? I don't know the actor's name, but yeah, that that would kind of fit. As Just well. also because he's got that voice that, like, I yeah. can imagine Chiron having. <laughs> Rage Jean Page. Page. Oh, I don't know if that's how he you say is it. A beautiful man. He is a beautiful man. I ha- I I, know- I couldn't decide on a Patroclus though. I think that that TikToks cast him quite well. Yeah, they also had like the younger. They cast the younger versions of them as well, but I couldn't have told you who they were. But yeah, it's a really good TikTok. I'll have to see if I liked it and send it to you. <laughs> Speaking of Bridgerton, this is a tangent. Who's who's your favourite? Who's the man that you like? Oh, the, the second... Do you like everyone? The second Bridgerton brother. Yeah, Benedict. Yeah. Yeah, same. <laughs> He's absolutely beautiful, charming, lovely. Give me the spare yeah. over the air any day. Exactly. <laughs> oh, do you know what's like... <laughs> My sister and I watched the first episode and I was just... Like, after it, I was like, why do I fancy this dickhead older brother, though? Like, because Benedict's not really in the first one. Yeah. And I was like, oh, he's so beautiful. I don't like it. But now, it, like, now I've watched a few more episodes and I do like him. The, yeah, Anthony Bridgerton, like, he's yeah. he's pretty he's pretty nice looking, but I can't get over his, like, mutton chop sideies. <laughs> like, I know that it's of yeah, the time. Like... I know it's a period <laughs> drama, but I just, every time I look at his face, I'm like, what is happening to your sideburns? Get that away. <laughs> Oh, but yeah, Benedict is where it's at. 100%. I love how he's just like drawing his wee pictures, not ratting out his sister. (laughs) We love him. Yeah, that was a good question though. Yeah, thanks, Dee. I went on a tangent there, but that was a really good question. That was a fun question. If if I can come up with an original answer to a cast for Patroclus, then I'll share it, but I I can't really top (laughs) Alfie, you know. Alfie. 
first I know it's not the first episode of the year for you guys, but it's the first episode of the year for us. Yeah. But I think that went all right. Yeah, it was fun. It's nice to get yes. back into it. Yes. So our email is infatuatedpodcast at outlook.com. We also have social media, which is linked in the show notes, as well as everything we mentioned. I'm also, just total self-promo, going to shout out that I've made a playlist for Ninth House on Spotify, and I think it's really good, so I'm going to link it there as well. <laughs> <laughs> it's really good music, guys. I like... I'm, I'm talking myself up here, but I think it's top tier. She is a really good playlist um, maker. Top, top <laughs> DJ for any party. Um, oh, I don't know about that. Maybe for sitting alone in your room. <laughs> but... That's the only party that's legal right now. So <laughs> True. But yeah, we, we set you guys a few challenges, so please do actually write in. It's going to be really embarrassing for us if you don't, because we're going to have to make it up and make it sound like someone did. <laughs> So if you could save us from that, that'd be great. Yes. But yeah, I think that's everything. Yeah. Catch us next time and stay safe, everyone. Bye. Bye. Bye.